the book of Titus. We get to start a brand new book tonight. I get so nervous starting a new book because so often I love the book I'm teaching out of. And it's like, oh, Lord, there can't be a book better than this. But I love Hebrews. I absolutely love Hebrews so much. We have not got a chance to go through Hebrews, I think, in 16 years. The last I looked, I think the last time I taught through Hebrews was in the year 2000. This is such a wonderful book. And I just encourage you to be blessed by this, to get involved with this as much as I am. You will just be absolutely blessed by it. Now, if you look at Hebrews, what I like about it is written the most... The unique way, I should say, in the New Testament, it's written differently than any other book in the New Testament. Most every other epistle in the New Testament, an epistle is a book that is written to a church or a person. It usually starts out with Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, you know, to the believers at Philippi, or it's James or Jude. If you look at Hebrews 1.1, it doesn't start that way. What's the first word in Hebrews 1.1? God. Can't find a better way to start a book. This is an interesting book. Because this is basically a book of theology, but it's not like a book of theology like Romans. Like when you read Romans, you got to really stop and think. But when you read Hebrews, it just flows so wonderfully. This is probably, according to my mindset, the most logical book in the New Testament. It just follows this beautiful order of events of what it's trying to kind of explain to us. And I just absolutely love the order that it goes through. And it's basically just trying to answer this question. Who is Jesus? That's not, you can't get much better than that. Chapter 1, Jesus is better than the angels. Then it goes to that, guess what? Jesus is better than Moses. Chapter 4, Jesus is better than Joshua. Chapter 5, Jesus is better than the priesthood. Takes a little break to explain the priesthood with Jesus. And in five chapters... Hebrews 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, five chapters, you will walk away with a deep understanding of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So if you've ever struggled with the Old Testament law, Hebrews in five chapters explains it so eloquently. Then Hebrews comes out and says, live by faith, chapter 11, walk it in chapter 12, and live it in chapter 13. But who was the author of Hebrews? We know the answer to this. Dustin, if you don't mind putting up that slide real quick. Two quick verses to share with you about Hebrews. 2 Peter 1, 20-21, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In 2 Timothy three sixteen, All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. The author of Hebrews is the Lord. Now, there's been way too much time, energy put into who actually wrote Hebrews. We're not even going to address it. Because if God wanted us to know who wrote Hebrews, guess what? He would have put their name on it. This is a book written by the Lord. Just like every other book of the Bible. And I think it's important to stop every now and then and remind us of this. When you read Genesis through Revelation, we firmly believe and teach that whatever person the Lord used to write that, when that pen touched paper for the first time, that was a holy inspired movement of God through the Holy Spirit. That's what we believe and teach. So who wrote Hebrews? The human author doesn't matter, but it was the Lord. And just remind yourself of these two passages. So when somebody comes up to you and wants to start debating authors in the Bible, hey, I know who the author of the Bible was. 2 Peter 1, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And then 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. One translation says all scripture is God-breathed. It's the Lord's words. So as we get into Hebrews, that's what we're going to talk about. Now, Hebrews is written to Jewish believers. Why? They were feeling the pull of Judaism. 
They had walked in this Jewish faith for years, the temple, the sacrifices, this whole idea of animals bleeding and dying for your sins. And then all of a sudden Jesus comes in and they're struggling with this. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, you know what? Let's talk about Jesus and let's compare him to what you're going through. Now listen, some of you may have come out of a very mainline denominational church. I'm not saying that to attack or pick. But you may have grown up with some very solid traditions and this is the way you did it. And you had some interesting takes and looks on faith. And then when you really started getting into the Bible, you start saying, well, wait a second. This thing that my church really pushed, it's it's not in there in those 66 books. Or, you know what, the Bible really just seems to teach this. This is kind of what those Jewish believers were going through. Their whole life, everything was about the temple and animals and sacrifice and blood and the law. Now they're saved, they're set free in Christ. Well, yeah, but what about Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? What about the temple? What about the sacrifices? It's all explained by Jesus. So who is Jesus? That's what Hebrews is going to answer for us. And that's why it's so important today. The world we live in today, you could go into work tonight, tomorrow, or school, or what have you, and you could openly talk about God, and not too many people would get offended. As soon as you mention the name Jesus, what happens? It changes everything. People like talking about God, because God is very neutral. God is very ambiguous. My God can be kind of like your God, but a little different, but we don't have to talk about it. But when I mention Jesus... I am setting a tone right there that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. That means I'm a Christian. And as a Christian, I follow the teachings of Christ. And Christ teaches the eternal heaven, the eternal hell, that the only way to be saved is through him. That's a totally different ballgame. So who is Jesus? Let's answer this as we get into it. So, first verse, Hebrews 1.1. Who is Jesus? God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. We'll stop right there. Now, we're not going to go this slow, because it's actually a pretty quick book. I love verse 1. God, who at various times and various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. Have you ever thought about all the different ways that the Lord spoke? So he spoke... Okay, here we go. All right, good evening, everybody. (laughs) We'll be in Hebrews tonight, chapter 1. Okay, think about all the different ways that God spoke in the Old Testament. First one here, by the prophets. That one's pretty straightforward. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Obadiah, you know that. If you ever thought about all the other ways that the Lord chose to speak in the Old Testament, I just started making a list off the top of my head. God chose to use a donkey. 
He chose to use a fish to get to hold of Jonah. He used angels. He used nature, creation, the stars, men, women. He used a burning bush. He used all these different things. The Lord is so unique on how he can speak to you. So he can use his word today. He can use the Holy Spirit today. He can use worship. He can use the body of Christ. If I'm ever praying about a decision and I need wisdom, it's like, Lord, use your word. Use the Holy Spirit. Use worship. Use the body of Christ. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying is the primary way the Lord wants to speak to us is through what? Jesus. That's why in John 1, what is Jesus described as? The Word. And the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. So therefore, the Word, He is the way the Lord wants to speak to us. So with that being said... Verse 2, in these last days spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he has appointed heir of all things. This is the way the Lord wants to speak. And to prove why Jesus is the one, he's going to give his resume right here. You ready for the resume of Jesus Christ? Start in verse 2. He is appointed heir of all things. Why? Through Through whom also he made the worlds. First thing we see is Jesus. He made the worlds. He created everything. That's a pretty good thing on your resume. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, verse 3, he is the glory of God, he is the person of God, upholding all things by the word of his power. Some of your translations say sustaining. This world is sustained by Christ, whom he had purged and by himself purged our sins. He cleansed us, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The resume of Jesus, he made the world's. He is the glory of God. He is the person of God. He sustains the entire world. He has cleansed us, and he has sat down at the right hand of God. So therefore, verse 4, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, he is better than the angels. Now, you may think that's not that big a deal. It's a pretty big deal 2,000 years ago. See, in Colossians chapter 2, Paul wrote to the church at Colossia saying, Stop worshiping angels. Now, you may think, oh, people don't worship angels today. Just go through the checkout line at any supermarket, and you can find calendars about angels. You can find all this stuff about angels, and you see this false teaching coming up about angels. Just remember the biblical truth of angels. There's only three named angels in the entire Bible. Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. Only three. So if you run into any teaching that starts talking about angels and different names, that's a false teaching. Remember when it comes to angels, they are created beings. Careful not to elevate them to this super status. Because in fact, what we're going to get into here next week is that we are going to eventually judge the fallen angels. You have to remember with angels, remember, created, they have ranks, there's only three named. And if you want to really study this out one time, in Galatians 1, 2,000 years ago, Paul warned the church, if any angel appears to you giving them another teaching, let it be accursed. Go back and start studying some of these cults that are around today. Where did they get their ideas from? An angel visited them. What did Paul write in Corinthians? That Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Satan pretends to be an angel. What does he do while being this holy angel? He brings false teaching. He brings false ideas. That's why here in Hebrews 1, the first point that the writer of Hebrews wants to say is, Jesus is better than the angels. In fact, Jesus 
created them. I grew up as a kid always envisioning Jesus and Satan being equals and almost duking it out. And I remember when I finally realized, wait a second, Jesus created Satan. This is not a battle. Satan is a created being created by Christ. Satan chooses to fall, but he's a created being. Jesus is better than the angels. Now, before we move on, anybody got any quick questions about angels or just this idea of Jesus being better than the angels? Yeah, Megan. Yeah, they do. There is that idea of the worship of angels, and that hasn't changed once again in 2,000 years. Paul said in Colossians 2, the worship of angels is the dangerous thing. Brian. That is a very good question. That's a very difficult question because I run into that an awful lot. Is that uh, somebody's spouse has passed away, somebody's grandma has passed away, and they say, well, I know that she's now an angel in heaven. I'll give you a quick story about this. Years ago, there was a very tragic accident, and somebody's spouse died very unexpectedly, very tragically. We went and ministered to the family, and the spouse kept saying, I, I, I know that she's an angel in heaven. I know she's an angel in heaven. Now, when you're standing there in the emergency room and everything has just happened, now's not the time to sit down and say, well, you got your Bible with you? Because I'd really like to explain to you in Hebrews chapter 1. I let it go. Now, we followed up with the family, obviously, and it was about a month after the funeral, sat down, and the person made the same comment again. It was a different scenario. It was a different time. I said, you know what? Can I, can I talk to you about that a little bit? Because you don't want your loved one to be an angel. There's something even better. And so when you sit down and explain to them that we don't become angels in heaven, in fact, the role that we have as a believer for all of eternity is higher and better than the angels, everybody walks away saying, oh, I get it now. But to answer your question, Ryan, where did that initially come from? I can't answer that where it initially came from. I think it supposedly helps us bring comfort, that our loved one is up there watching us from heaven, supposedly flying around. This idea of, well, that must be what angels are, the departed saints. Like you said, it is not a biblical mindset. It's not a biblical thought. And before you think we're being rude, when we die, we have a better role in ministry than the angels do. And so, therefore, that's what we want, not the subordinate role of angels. A good question. Yeah, Carol. Does it say somewhere that he us a There's numerous references to the Bible to that idea. It doesn't use the term guardian angel. Jesus himself spoke about how in the Gospels that the children have an angel that watches over them, that their angel in heaven is watching over them. Psalm 91 says that he will give his angels charge over us. That has led some people to believe that part of the ministry of angels is they do watch out for us. If you jump ahead to verse 14 of the same chapter, Hebrews 1, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who inherit salvation, talking about angels? The role of angels are to minister to us. Biblical examples of that, Paul getting out of prison, Peter getting out of prison, etc. You know, an angel came and ministered to Mary to give her the news about the gospel, uh, Jesus coming, etc. So that's where that mindset comes from. There's a couple references in the Bible that seem to hint that the Lord has, in this order of ranks, said, okay, angels, you're also watching over certain people. So that's where they kind of think that. So Jesus said it, and don't forget too, I just remember this, remember when Peter got out of prison, and the church was praying for Peter, they came to the door, and remember, the girl answered the door, and they said, who's there? And they said, it's Peter, and she came back and said, Peter's here. And they said, no, it's not Peter, it must be his angel. 
because the Jews also believe that your guardian angel looked exactly like you as well, too. So there is some biblical evidence to kind of show that maybe there are some angels that kind of watch over, but just don't take it to the extreme of this idea of letting the role of the Holy Spirit be neutralized by this angel that watches over us. The angels are used. There's a ministry for them. There's no doubt about that. But the primary ministry we have is the ministry of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. But like Carol said, there are references to that in the New Testament. Megan. What's that? Okay, what about babies that died? Great question. The best example in the Bible of a baby that died is uh, David and Bathsheba had a one-year-old son after their affair. And what happened is that baby died. And so when that baby died, David said this, he cannot come to me, meaning the dead child, but I can go to him. So therefore, the Bible is teaching that babies will inherit salvation. Remember, before Nineveh was destroyed, God said about Nineveh, there's 400,000 people in there that cannot tell their right hand from their left hand. So therefore, God is saying, I'm going to spare them because they do not have the mental capacity to be able to understand. So there's enough references in the Bible to me to show that if a baby dies, the baby has automatic entrance into heaven because they're not old enough to understand sin, salvation, heaven, hell. There's a term that we use. You'll not find it in the Bible, but it's just kind of a generic term that we call the age of accountability, that everybody has a different age where they're accountable to fully understand and grasp the truths of the Bible, and they have to decide whether to accept or reject Jesus. For some people, the age of accountability may come much earlier in life. For some people that may have some mental health issues, that age of accountability may never come. And the Lord in his grace and mercy, I believe there's enough references in the Bible that when that person dies, they get to go home to heaven. God is a God of grace, love, and mercy. He's not going to send somebody to hell who did not have the opportunity to understand and accept. And I think that shows that in Nineveh and it shows that with David's son. Anybody else got anything? David. Yeah. Yeah, if you look and, you know, David brought up angels ministering to Jesus. When Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, the Bible said the angels came and ministered to him after that 40 days were up. So angels have this ministry role to people. Anybody else have anything? Okay. So, Jesus is better than the angels. That's the point that they're trying to make here real quick. And we'll go through this pretty quickly because it's pretty straightforward. This is what he says in verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. What he's basically saying is angels, they're not sons of God. They may use that term, but they're not the son of God like Jesus. And God is not their father like Jesus is. So point to Jesus. He is God's son, and he is his father. Angels don't have that role. Verse 6. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. How is Jesus better than the angels? The angels worshipped Jesus. Angels worshipped him. Verse 7. And of the angels, he said, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? Depending on your translation, what he's trying to say in verse 7, some of your uh, translations in verse 7 may say something to the effect of like the wind. Because he says, ministers of flame of fire. When you see this picture of fire, it's kind of wispy. It's there and it's gone. It's where and it's gone. The wind is there and it's gone. That's the ministry of an angel. Shows up, does its job, and gets out of the way. Well, Jesus, that's not his role. His role is a role of permanence. His role is a role of being established. Verse 8, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
You're not like an angel, a flame of fire, a wind that just appears, disappears, appears, disappears. No, you are established, Jesus. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. You are established in your ministry, Jesus. And just to prove this one more time, verse 10. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens of the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remained. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up and they will be changed, but you are the same. Your years will not fail. The final point on how Jesus is better than the angels, start right here in verse 10. Jesus created everything. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth. Jesus created the angels. Next one. Verse 11, they will perish, but you remain. Jesus is eternal. Next one, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. They don't, excuse me, let me rephrase. Jesus never changes. It's called the immutableness of God. He is God the same forever and ever. Verse 12, you are the same, and your ears, ears, your ears will not fail. Your years will not fail. Jesus created the world. Jesus is eternal. Jesus never fails. Jesus never changes. That is all better than the angels. Hence now, verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who inherit salvation? They have a role. Their role is to minister to the body of Christ. You know, like Carol mentioned, the idea of guardian angels that the Bible hints to. Paul, Peter, angels gave the law, angels are used in judgment, angels are used in messengers. They have a role, but basically the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey guys, don't worship them. Don't elevate them. Who are you supposed to elevate? Jesus. Now, it's not just about angels. Take out the phrase angels and just put any other phrase you want in there. You're not supposed to elevate a person, you're supposed to elevate Jesus. You're not supposed to elevate a ministry, a pastor, or a church. You're supposed to elevate Jesus. That's what it's all about. So, 2,000 years ago, they were elevating angels. No, the writer of Hebrews says, stop that. Jesus. This is a quick time for us just to stop and say, is that what my life looks like? Because how much of our time and energy in our life is spent elevating us? Or elevating what I want? I do a lot of marriage counseling. What I see a lot in marriage counseling is, well, my needs and wants aren't being met. I want to be more important. Where Jesus is constantly telling us, no, be humble, wash feet. It's not about you. People get frustrated at work. I want more recognition. I want more promotion. I want more pay. Well, no, it's supposed to be about elevating Jesus at work. Everything we do is supposed to be putting him first. And what do we do? We disappear. Because it's supposed to be all about Christ and Christ alone. That's chapter 1. The preeminence of Jesus. And who is Jesus? He's better than anything. Any quick questions, comments about that before we move on? Okay. Take this logical thought and just keep going with it. Verse 2, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, because of what? Because of Jesus and how great he is, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. The writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, if you keep your focus on Jesus, you're not going to drift away. You're not going to get caught up in stuff. Think about this. Think about the last few things in life that just completely, utterly frustrated you and made you respond in the flesh and in sin. It probably didn't have a lot to do with heaven and hell and Jesus and the inherency of God's word. You probably got your feathers ruffled by something your spouse did or somebody did at work or something your kids did, right? See, the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, if you get that Jesus is first, give him earnest heed. Put him number one so you don't drift away. 
Verse 2, For if the word spoken through the angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience receives a just reward, so basically everything we do is going to be judged, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him? God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. The writer of Hebrews is saying is this, listen, if this stuff is true, which we've already proven to you that it is. Verse 3, how do you think you're going to get out of this? How do you think you're going to get out of this? For those that weren't with us a couple weeks ago, you know, when we had uh, Rich Day come in and, uh, you know, Jonathan Heidi headed up those revival services, he came in and spoke. And one of the points that he was speaking about is if you say that you hear and understand what the Lord is saying, then your obedience to it will show it. Because if you tell me you get it, but you don't live it, then you really don't get it. And what Hebrews is saying here in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2 is, listen, if you really are going to sit here right now and say, I get it, Jesus is better than the angels, He's better than anything, this salvation is so great, but you're not going to go live it? The writer of Hebrews is saying, what do you think is going to happen to you? There's going to be a judgment that comes. That's not trying to scare anybody. That's not trying to make you shake. It's just being honest. Verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him? You heard it. It was confirmed. We were outside today playing with the boys, and they like to play this game, you know, monkey in the middle. So there's all of us out there. We got the football. We're throwing it around at each other. And so... You know, there's two of us throwing it, and then there's this whole mass of the boys in the middle. And it gets rough, it gets crazy, and it just, that's kind of what happens. It turns into tackle monkey in the middle pretty quick. So when it gets out of hand, what do I do? All right, everybody, get up. Okay, so they usually get up. Now, as the game goes on, it takes a little bit while longer for them to get up, right? And all of a sudden, it becomes the pile-up, right? Everybody just starts jumping on top of each other. And next thing you know, people are tickling each other, kicking each other, and it just kind of gets out of hand. So, I say, get up. They don't respond. I use a bit little louder voice. Get up. Then I use a voice that's loud enough you could hear my old way. And they get up. So, they're up now. I said, did you guys hear me the first time? They said, yeah. What am I supposed to do with that information? You heard me the first time. And you ignored me. No, we didn't. But you did. Because if you heard me say, get up, and you chose not to, That means you understood what I wanted and you chose to disobey. Now, that's just a small thing. What the writer of Hebrews here in verses 1 through 4 is trying to tell us, and understand the severity of this. Okay, Lord, I get it. What do you get? I I get that Jesus is number one. I get that he's the most important thing. I get salvation. I get heaven. I get hell. I get eternity. I get it. The writer of Hebrews is saying, okay, if you say you get it and you choose not to live it, you're asking for problems. And how often do we see in the church today people that say, I get it. If you get it, where's the obedience to it? If you get it, why isn't your life showing us this? Because right now in Hebrews chapter 2, he's saying, listen, if you show that Jesus is number one, that means, guess what? He's the authority over everything. So since he's the authority 
Who are we to even think about this? See, go to verse 5. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. Angels aren't the authority. He's the authority. But one testified in a certain place. Listen to this passage in in verse 6 there. And verse 6 is coming right out of Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or that the son of man that you take care of him? Lord, what are we? But now more specifically about Jesus. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with the glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. So basically, if everything's under him, nothing is not under him. But now we do not yet see all things under him. See, now some people may say, verse 8, okay, so if Jesus is in charge of everything, why is it when I flip on the news... I see awful, horrible things happening to babies. Why is it I see a world that's completely falling apart? Why do I see revolutions happening across the world and innocent people dying? And I see tornadoes, I see earthquakes. Look at verse 8. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. Jesus is the authority. Everything is under him. Well, why don't I see it? You will see it. That's what the book of Revelation is about. So what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell you right now is, listen, if you understand how important he is and how big he is, you better start living it. Verse 9, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. Think about that for a second. He was made a human, lower than the angels. Why? For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Jesus humbled himself To be made a man. Now, we don't think that sounds very humbling because we think we're pretty much the top dog. No. He humbled himself, became a man. Why? That he may suffer, taste death for everyone. This is the point that Hebrews is trying to make. Look at what Christ did for you. He is better than anything. He has created everything. He's eternal, never changing. All things are under his feet. He was willing to die for you. He tasted death For you. For you. And what basically the writer of Hebrews is saying is, what are you going to do with this information? That's the question we have to ask. What are are you going to do with this? Because I would assume most all of you here tonight, if I'd stand back there at the back door as you guys are leaving, and I'd shake your hand, and I'd say, hey, do you have any questions over what we talked about tonight? No. So you got it all? Yeah. So you get it that Jesus is number one. You get it that all things are under his feet. You get it that everything's about him. Yeah, I get it. Okay, well then according to the writer of Hebrews... We need to go live it this week. Yeah, I'm going to go live it. And then we go home and do what? The same old, same old. This is where the writer of Hebrews is saying, guys, things need to change. And are we ready for that? Now, any quick questions, comments here over anything that we're talking about? Do you see the logical progression? He's better than everything. Everything is put under his feet. Everything is now in subjection to him. Any quick questions, comments? Okay, let's just do a couple more verses and then we'll be done. For it was fitting, verse 10, for him, for whom all things, and by whom are all things, catch that verse one more time. For it was fitting for him, meaning Jesus, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things. Everything in this world was created through him, and for him, and by him. And bringing many sons to glory, that's us. To make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Jesus wanted to save us. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. 
For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Did you catch that? You're God's brethren. That's pretty impressive. He says, you're my brother. And what is he doing? Verse 11, he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified. Now, those are just some fancy words. And what those fancy words kind of mean and what those fancy words kind of represent, sanctification just means being set apart. That's all it means. God is saying, I have set you apart. How has he set us apart? He set us apart through salvation. We're now called and set apart from the world and all that we do and all that we say. I love right here how it says in the NIV, both the ones who make men holy and those who are made holy. That's what it means to be sanctified. You came in here tonight, I came in here tonight, and we are awful, disgusting sinners. That's the truth of it. Romans 3 makes that abundantly clear. Let's just get this point out. If we think there's anything remotely good in us, no way. Isaiah says this, our works are like filthy rags. The best thing you could ever do in this world is still what? Unholy. Because that's just who we are. We're sinful. And so God has to make us holy. That's what the word sanctified means. He pulls us out of sin and says, James, you are a sinner, but I'm going to make you holy. I'm going to sanctify you by me. Not by what I did, but by me. By Jesus Christ. And once he does that, Guess what happens? Let's finish this up. Verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. That through death, through Christ's death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Did you ever catch that? What does Satan have? Verses 14 and 15. The fear of death. That's one of his greatest powers. You go talk to a typical person. You ask them what they're afraid of. They're afraid of dying. Where does that fear come from? That comes from Satan. It's a lie from the pit of hell. But when you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, and you have the assurance of salvation, death is not a fear. See, that's what Jesus did. Verse 15, release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Do you know somebody who's scared to death, pun intended, to die? Best thing you could do is tell them about Jesus Christ. Isn't that an amazing thing? If you're here tonight and the subject of death comes up and it makes you nervous and scared... Whoa, 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 hold on a second. What's death? Death is just going home to heaven. That's nothing to be scared of. Nothing to be scared of. Hey, Ron, can I pick on you for a second? Sure. Thanks. I knew you would say yes. Anybody that's ever here tonight saying, I hope he never does that to me. I would never pick on somebody that I know did not want to be picked on. I know Ron. I love Ron. He's okay with me picking on him. Some of you may remember years ago, Ron had cancer. And you know the story I'm going to tell. We were standing outside, I believe it was after a Saturday morning men's prayer time, Ron and Rich were talking. Now, you guys know Rich, we love Rich, but Rich has no filter between head and mouth. You guys know that. Ron was talking about cancer. And basically, Ron made a comment saying, what's the worst that could happen with cancer? And you said, the worst that could happen would be what, Ron? Right. No, that you would die. Thanks for screwing up the story, Ron. I, I give you your opportunity to shine. Come on, man. Ron said, the worst thing that could happen is that I would die. And Rich said, no, the worst thing that could happen is that you live. Because Rich was saying, death is a release. Death is freedom. Death is, it's done. It's over. It's completely done. 
And, and I thought, what, what a deep thing. And I understand what Ron was saying. The worst thing that could happen is I die. Ron was basically saying, if I die, I die. I go home to heaven. And Rich was saying, no, the worst thing happens is you live because you have to stay here. I tell you, I just want to remind everybody, if you're here tonight and the subject of death comes up and it makes you feel a little strange, a little weird, I don't know what to think about this, I'm not assured, then let's stop right now and be assured of this. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. I talk to my boys all the time about heaven. We talk all the time about what's going to be like in heaven, how we're going to die sometime. When we do devotions, sometimes I say, listen, I don't know what I'm going to be here, so I want to teach you now, because if I'm not here when you're older, I want you to remember these points. And we also talk a lot about the rapture. Something happens at home, we say, listen, the rapture may happen. We may not need to worry about this. So if you go up and ask my boys about death and the rapture, especially I think it's Kenan is the one that says this all the time. Kenan always says this, What's the one where I get to go to heaven and I don't have to die? I said, that's the rapture. Kenan goes, that's the one I want. I agree, that's the one I want too. But what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say is, listen, Satan's power over you is death. He wants you to walk in fear of death. And when you walk in fear of death, guess what? You're not living then. Because you're just worried about you and making it. Where Jesus says, wait a second. Haven't I just proven to you in two chapters I am sovereign over all things? So far, when your death day comes, don't you think I know it? I got it. The Bible says I hold your very breath of life in my hands. So therefore, you do not have to fear death. And that fear of death, according to verse 15, it's a bondage. If you are here tonight and you are in bondage to the fear of death, I want to remind you of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. I want to remind you that he is your God. He is sovereign. I want to remind you of what is awaiting you in heaven. You don't need to turn there. But Revelation 21.4 says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. That's what's awaiting for you in heaven. I want to remind you what it says in Psalm 116. The pains of death surrounded me. The cords of death laid hold on me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Not body, soul. For you have delivered my soul from death. My physical body may die, but my soul will live on forever. Same chapter. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. See, God does not look at death as some awful thing. He says, you get to come home now. I mean, can you imagine being at work tomorrow? You show up, you clock in one minute into your shift, your boss says, go home. I'll pay you for the rest of the day. Are you going to fight that? No. You're going home. So God shows up, taps you on the shoulder. Hey, it's time to go home. Oh, no, Lord, I can't. Why? I got so much stuff I want to accomplish down here. What? Let's go home. When the Lord says it's time to go, it's time to go. And the Lord says, trust me in this. And you can have assurance through what Christ did. Now, let me just make this clear. It's not through what you did. If you're sitting here tonight and you're thinking you're going to get in by good works or God just loves you, yeah, he does love you. But the only currency accepted in heaven is the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what Hebrews is trying to tell us. So through the rest of Hebrews, the Lord is trying to tell us, you want eternity, you want salvation, then it comes through Christ. And if that's what you want tonight, that's what we need to know and understand. I want everybody to walk out of this room tonight with the assurance that they know that they can go to heaven. Don't walk in the fear of death anymore. That's a bondage. Satan wants to break you of that. And Jesus says, no, I want to set you free from that. 
Any final questions, comments here about death or anything here as we're finishing up? Megan. Mm-hmm. Turn from the Lord? Yeah. Well, you know what? That sounds like that's a fear. And the Bible said that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a strength, power, and a sound mind. Uh, real quick, that's a very deep question, and thank you for throwing that at me with two minutes to go, Megan, because <laughs> you're really good at deep questions. Couldn't have started that at 7.30, could you? Um <laughs> John 15 says that we abide in him. Uh, The Bible says the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, that we are his children, that we are sealed. And I think sometimes we have to realize that when we walk in that fear of what happens if I turn away or something, the example I like to give is this. I I have five boys, you know. I can't imagine what those boys would have to do for me to look down at them and say, I no longer want to be your father. Um, I love them. So there's a whole lot more to that question, Megan, there is. And I'm not trying to give you a quick little answer, and I'd love to talk to you about that one-on-one afterwards because I'd love to sit down and show you the scriptures where the Lord is saying, listen, if you're mine and you're committed to me, I'm committed to you. And that's what John 15 is trying to say to us. Abide in Jesus, and he will abide in you. And that's what we need to talk about, Lord. I want to abide in you, Megan, and I know your heart. You want to abide in him. Don't let Satan get in there and cast that fear at you. Anybody else have anything here before we close up? Carol. That's right. That's right. Amen. That, that's the beauty of it. The Lord is a God of second chances, third chances, whatever. And First John tells us that even if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. I tell you, I've been walking with the Lord for 23 years, and there's been certain times in my life where I've probably tried to convince myself that I'm not his child. And the Lord just says, you're mine, James. You're mine. And it's like, Lord, thank you. Remember, Luke 16, the prodigal leaves, but what does the prodigal do? Comes back. The reason he's called a son is because the prodigal comes back. We will all have seasons that maybe we are not the best on fire, born again believer that you could ever imagine. But the truth is the Holy Spirit lives in our heart. And Lord, I'm going to come back. And Hebrews gets into this. Hebrews gets into it, especially in Hebrews chapter 6. It talks about falling away. So we'll definitely get into this more as we go through Hebrews here. Anybody have any other final questions, comments? David. Yeah. That's a beautiful point, too. He'll leave the 99 to come for us. If I start to drift, uh, Jesus says, yeah, James, you're mine. I sealed you. I'm going to come get you. And what a beautiful picture that is, too. No. Remember Peter. Remember Peter. Peter left to go back to fishing. What did Jesus do? He went to the beach to find him. He went to the beach to restore him. Anybody else have anything here before we close up? Yeah, Rose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rose is talking about Matthew 7, about knowing and not knowing him. And, you know, it's just, it's just a huge topic. But I think what happens is Satan does this. If he can't keep us from getting to know Christ personally to start with, I've seen this with some people, that he will attack them the rest of their lives of salvation. You know, um, we used to do, when we did some altar calls out here, I remember there was one individual that would constantly come to get saved. And I remember pulling her aside one time afterwards and saying, 
can I talk to you about the assurance of salvation? Because I wanted her to know she can be assured. That's what 1 John was written for, is to say you can be assured of knowing Christ, that you don't have to walk in this fear. Oh, I hope I'm in, I hope I'm in. You're in. Yeah, but I, I don't, I don't, I'm not good enough. Of course you're not good enough. That's why it's grace. If you deserved it, it wouldn't be called grace. That's why it's called grace. And just take that point to life. There's some people out there that you think, well, they don't deserve grace. Well, of course they don't deserve grace. That's why it's called grace. If they deserved it, it wouldn't be called grace. None of us deserve anything. So, all righty. A lot of good stuff. I hope you're as blessed by Hebrews. We're going to teach it a little differently like we did tonight. We're just going to go through it because it's just so logical, so straightforward, and I absolutely love it. So, hey, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Fathers, we just come to you now. What a great study just to learn of you, and we want to put Jesus first. Lord, help us. Help us to do that, to live it, to not just say it, but to live it, to walk in your grace. And Lord, if there's someone here tonight that does not know you and does not have that assurance, I pray in the name of Jesus, you're speaking to their heart of that assurance that they can know you personally. And today is the day of salvation. Lord, speak to them. Thank you in your name. Amen. Two things before I let you go. I'm going to stay up here. If anybody's got anything they want to pray about, come on up here. If you have any questions about assurance or salvation, today is the day. Talk to me. I don't mean to embarrass him, but I'm going to point him out. Uh, Bob Bortel was with us tonight. For those that don't know, back in August, right? Back in August. Was it August? July. Bob had an accident, fell off a ladder, and shattered is not a strong enough word, right? Shattered his ankle. And this is... uh, He's back, up walking again. I know a lot of you have prayed for him and stuff, and it's a blessing to have Bob back. So if you get a chance, say hi to him too. But if anybody has anything they want to pray about, come on up here. I'd like to get a chance to pray. And uh, since I just have the mic on, I'm not picking, but Matt, I need to talk to you. <laughs> Matt's not in trouble. Don't, don't be a gossip and think something's going on. So, But Matt, I need to talk to you if you get a chance. So have a good evening, guys. God bless. If you've got anything you want to pray about, come on over here and grab me, okay?